Welcome to RaiseTheLineWithOsmosis.org. Seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi everybody, I'm Michael Carice. We've been fortunate on Raise the Line to hear from clinicians and educators around the globe, including from Israel, Uzbekistan, Singapore, and India, to name a few. But today we welcome our first guest from Wales. Professor Steve Riley is Dean of Medical Education and head of the School of Medicine at Cardiff University, where he's responsible for the design, delivery, and development of the undergraduate medicine program. His academic interests include curriculum design, education leadership, and application of systems theory to education delivery. He's also passionate about social accountability in the higher education sector, including issues such as health inequities, DEI, and climate change. In addition, Dr. Riley is a nephrologist with a special interest in diabetes and a fellow of the Academy of Medical Educators. And thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you. We always start on the program with wanting to learn more about our guests and what got them interested in medicine, and in your case, particularly nephrology. So what's the story there? Well, I'm the first of my family to go to university. I grew up in the middle of the heart of the Midlands in the middle of England. Um, And I had a neighbor who was a practicing GP. And we were very friendly. And I used to chat away to him. And it was always interesting to me. He was a, a police surgeon and a GP and an orthopedic surgeon originally from India and came over in the late 70s, early 80s, really, to practice in the UK. And he really got me started on this path of being a a doctor. Ended up setting myself up to do medicine and moved to Cardiff in Wales to start university and then never left, really, and really found the environment in which I work in, in Cardiff and in Wales in general, to be in line with my way of thinking. I developed very strong friendship groups through university and settled here when I met my wife. And then I guess nephrology really was a mentor of mine. I started doing nephrology clinics as a junior doctor and I was in a clinic with a professor of nephrology called John Williams. And just the subject just fascinated me in terms of the patient contact, the continuity of care, the numbers nephrologists are usually numbers people and uh, it was it was around the numbers for me and again back to the system thinking I guess really the way in which the kidney interacts with other systems in the body and maintains homeostasis so that's how I got to where I am and then from medical education wise I, I started as a clinical academic and started doing some clinical research in the time that It was very, very challenging to get really big grant capture for that sort of work. And I was asked to do some curriculum work and to help with students. And really took to it like a duck to water, really, and enjoyed doing it. And then worked my way around a sort of a self-made apprenticeship of the various aspects of medical education. And and that's how I've ended up here today. When you were first starting out as a physician was being a leader and getting into academic medicine part of what you had in mind or that happened unexpectedly? Completely unexpectedly. Uh, It never really occurred to me, to be honest. I tend to try and just do a good job and make sure the people around me are supported to do a good job. But as time went by, I did enjoy 
the aspects of the work that involve maybe lifting the bonnet and having a look underneath the bonnet and seeing how the engine works. You know, that sort of thing started to have an impact on me. I have the very, very good privilege of working with some excellent leaders who have shown me the ropes and I've learned from each and every one of them. And I've enjoyed trying to apply what they've taught me. I've done a variety of courses that, you know, I could advertise on this, but I'll perhaps resist from that, <laughs> that, that have really shown me the way in terms of, you know, how people in this specialty, I will call it a specialty of medical education, how they think, how they work. Some of the real big hitters I've had the privilege to talk to and, and listen to. And I guess it's just fallen well for me, really. You mentioned before that you felt at home at Cardiff or connected to the outlook and the mission there. Tell me more about that. Wales is a very different place. You know, all four nations have got their differences, I guess. The political philosophy is different to England. The approach of the NHS has differed significantly from England and other parts of the UK. There is a sense of citizenship and social accountability that I get in Wales. And it feels as though you can make a difference in terms of trying to influence the way in which underserved parts of Wales can be helped to improve in terms of recruitment and retention of the medical workforce or the clinical workforce, I should say. So it's multiple factors, really. Put that on top of a place that is really great to live in. You know, we've got some really great places around for recreational time. It had all of the things that I wanted out of life, really. So I, that's where I settled. We'll get back to the social accountability uh, piece in a minute. But first, can you give the audience a sense of the size and scope of the School of Medicine at Cardiff University and also what you think the particular strengths are? Oh, okay. So we are quite a big school. We have around 1,500 undergraduate medical students and around the same postgraduate taught students, around 200, 250 postgraduate research students. And we are structured into five big divisions and centres with a fairly strong research portfolio that covers systems immunity, psychiatry and neuroscience, cancer and genetics, and population medicine. We are a big school and we're a big part of a big university. Cardiff University is a Russell Group University in the UK. About 30,000 students every year come through Cardiff University. So yeah, it's a fairly big organization. I would say, yeah. So let's return to the social accountability issue, which is quite important to you and something that you pursue at School of Medicine. Help us understand how that manifests itself and how you try to engage the students in, in thinking about that. I mean, I guess that, that many medical students, when they come into university, have already got a lot of what we talk about in terms of social accountability, because we read about it when we look at their personal statements and they talk to us at interview about how they want to help people and communities. And very often students will come in having already done significant community work or volunteer work. And so for me, it's a way of enhancing that. And I mentioned before, I've had the great privilege of talking to some of the people who really espouse social accountability, David Hershop up in Boston there. You know, I've had some great conversations with him about this. 
again, Paul Worley from Australia, Roger Strasser, formerly of Northern Ontario. These are people that really I've listened to and understood the philosophy and wanted to recreate some of the things that they've achieved in their own part of the world, really. So for me, it's about trying to structure a course that recognizes the needs of the local population and seeing how a school of medicine or our a curriculum or a bunch of students can contribute back to make things better for the population. So it's about maybe getting students to go back into schools to teach health literacy. It's about trying to raise the expectation of students at school who might want to then come in to do a health-related education degree. It's about looking at social and health inequalities and trying to align research strengths with how that might impact on local populations. Wales is, you know, a relatively, it does have a high proportion of its population who do struggle with social and health inequalities. And to me, it's finding ways in which we can influence that and make a difference to people. You know, in the United States, as I'm sure you're probably aware, the issue of health disparities, well, let's put it this way, spotlight really has been shown on that. These are longstanding problems. Uh, it was not news to the people who were on the ground helping these communities, but it really has hit people just how we almost have two healthcare systems. Was the awareness factor also strong in Wales, or were you folks pretty much aware of the inequality issue? I think there is an awareness there. There's certainly an awareness from government, Welsh government, and also from healthcare communities. I think that the the, the challenge is making a difference to that really. The geography of Wales is such that there are large parts that have got smaller populations in more rural and hard to reach communities, not by the standards of the United States or Canada, for instance, where you're talking about hundreds of miles by road to reach some of the more distant communities. But still, even in for the UK, the infrastructure does provide challenges to get to places and trying to work on ways in which you can entice people to put their roots in those communities and then work in those communities following graduation is one of those things that I think is really important because we do have to recognize we've got a legacy to leave in terms of that population group. Do you have any sense yet about whether there has been an improvement through the course of the pandemic? Uh, improve. I think there's been a detriment, actually. I think the pandemic has shone a light in the UK on the frailty of the healthcare system because we have such a lot of ground to make up now in terms of, of those patients who have been on waiting lists to get operations or to get treatment. There's no doubt that there are probably undiagnosed conditions out there at the moment that we need to pick up. And I know a lot of the work is ongoing for there. Our general practitioners are working really hard. They, they are hard pressed at the moment to be able to see patients as demand increases. And then the system itself is struggling to cope with all the referrals that are going through the system. And our waiting lists have grown significantly. And in my mind, there's no doubt that will impact most on those people at the intersections of, of social health, diversity, those groups that we know are underrepresented and struggle to engage with healthcare. Yeah, that's a similar story here for sure. So I noted at the beginning you have an interest in curriculum design. Are there 
particular curricular innovations in place at your school that you want to talk to us about? They're innovations for us, I guess, but other people have been doing them for a long time, really. I think we started on a new curriculum back in 2013, so we do another curriculum refresh now, really. And at that time, we focused very much on uh, modernising our curriculum, contextual learning, trying to take out those aspects of basic science that weren't needed to make room for those new areas of science that we need to enable the students to learn. So early clinical experience was, was important to us and trying to embed educational continuity, which I'm not sure we were completely successful with in that curriculum that we termed C21 that was launched in 2013. I mean, as we've learned as a group going through, I think we are better able to understand what educational continuity means. And we were able to introduce a longitudinal integrated clerkship model for a, a, a proportion of our students um, three, three or four years ago now. And that was with the help of Roger and Paul and David. It does seem to be strengthening what we can offer. Our first group of students graduated this year. We are trying to evaluate the impact of it, but that, again, is something that we need to wait for more numbers to come through the system. We then entered into a, a collaboration with one of our sister universities, Bangor University in North Wales, to start a, a smaller C21 curriculum in North Wales and, and try to embed students for the entirety of their medical education in North Wales as a means by which to demonstrate potentially that we could entice students to stay and work in that environment post-graduation. And our first students will graduate from that in next year, I think, so 2023. And so again, that's more evidence for us to try and affirm what's happened in Northern Ontario, I guess, and other places around the world. That's pretty much where we're at with our curriculum design. Early on, actually, we moved our final assessments. Not that we call them finals anymore, but students are still sort of wanting to call them finals. We tried to make all of their major assessments at the end of year four. So we've got a five-year program in the UK. So that their final year was all about preparation for practice and learning to work in the environment in which they're training. So it was very much a case of getting the students hands-on experience to give them more confidence when they came to work in the uh, post-graduation environment. And I think that's worked very, very well. Again, you know, the data there, we need to look at it a bit more detail, I think. But I think it, as an innovation, it's worked pretty well. So obviously, COVID was extremely disruptive to all higher education, but medical education particularly, I think, because of the clinical placements that are required and so forth. What do you think are going to be the lasting changes as a result of COVID to medical education? I think that one of the things that we have seen is the need to educate our students in a non-face-to-face consultation environment so either video consultation or telephone consultation and and i know that curricula probably did that pre-covid but it certainly raised the stakes in terms of how we train our students to be able to make themselves more accessible to patients and i know in my own clinic that you know we've moved away we've got virtual clinics we've got telephone clinics we've got occasional video clinics and other people around wales and the uk are doing very similar things 
So for me, that's one of the sort of COVID hangovers that will stay with us, I think. And we've set up our clinical skills program to ensure that our students do get experience in that environment. I think one thing we learned was that those students who survived the best in the first wave of COVID were those students who were in general practice because the general practitioners recognized, because of educational continuity probably, recognized the benefit of having a student there in terms of delivery of care. Whereas in secondary care, it was more about, well, hold on, let's clear the decks because we don't quite know what's coming. Let's get all the students out because they're no use to us. And actually that was probably the wrong way around that, that when we did look at our final year students going into the clinical environment to support the junior doctors and deliver care in an environment that was frightening for everybody, they excelled. And so I think it's trying to work out now how our students become more integrated into the delivery of care and are seen as an asset rather than as a job that they need to be taught. Interesting. So as you may know, we're a teaching company and we love to fill knowledge gaps. We always like to ask our guests if there's something that they're particularly concerned about or interested in as a gap and would say, you know, osmosis, if you could make a video about that, that would be terrific. What would that be? I think the thing that challenges me the most, I guess, is how to navigate the ever increasing world of evidence and data that is being put forward. Students struggle with looking at the depth of what they need to learn. We're quite good at demonstrating breadth. So we can say you need to learn about cardiology, nephrology, obstetrics, gynecology. What we're not very good at is saying how much you need to know about those subjects. And the problem is that more and more that gets piled on in terms of the exponential publication rate makes it even harder, I think, for busy clinicians and students to make headway. And I know there are tools that do that for us that, you know, there's up to date and there are other groups that will assimilate that information for you. But I still think it's a challenge for us in terms of being able to navigate that data. And then the other thing that I discovered a few weeks ago was that when evidence is published, I think they said it can take up to 13 years for it to get embedded into standard practice. Oh my goodness. So that implementation science, I think is something that we are, and I know there are experts in this around the world, but you know that's something that we could look at a bit more strongly perhaps in curricula and, and in how we train people. So as we wrap up here, we have a lot of students and early career professionals in our audience, and you're obviously somebody who's providing advice to students all the time. What is it that you tell your own students about meeting the challenges of this moment, this pandemic, and just generally approaching their career in healthcare? I mean, I try and tell them to enjoy themselves, if I'm honest. And I know that's a challenge with what we've all been through, really. I think the COVID has piled on the pressure in terms of expectation of what we deliver as individuals and what health services can deliver as an organization and i think it's very easy to start feeling that pressure yourself and i think it's important to have people around you that you can decompress with you can understand and you can support because we all find there are times when we're at a low point because of whether it's not seeing family or it's the pressures of work that come in 
so for me it is about sort of support for each other really in terms of how we get through things and and again i think you know that friendship circle that you develop at medical school is something that i think i try and and get our students to nurture themselves i'm still friends with a few of my very close friends from university and you know they will always be my source of support really in terms of you know understanding where i'm at and what i'm doing so for me it should be enjoyable really you should be, enjoy doing your job and you should have the people around you to commiserate with and celebrate with when you've got those those things that are challenging you really and i'm lucky enough to have those people around me and i think as leaders we should try and nurture those circles but it is very hard because we're getting bigger and bigger and bigger as, as organizations that's really excellent advice and a, a great note to end on. I really want to thank you for spending a few minutes with us and giving us a view into what's happening with medical education in Wales, Professor Riley. Thank you very much. Pleasure to speak to you. I'm Michael Carice. Thanks for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Mm-hmm.